on now? I'm, everything I say from here on out is okay. <laughs> um, so Kathy was kind enough to read the book of Jude, all 25 verses. And Jude, you'll find, um, we're in Hebrews, so I guess it's just a coincidence that Jude is right before, uh, right after Hebrews, actually, just before Revelation. So you can find it down there at the very end of the New Testament. All right, so let's begin. Father, thank you for this morning, for your word, for gathering us together. And Lord, we would, as Jude says, uh, we probably would rather talk about our common salvation, but rather he said, no, I must address you about our common enemy, about the bad guys out there who come into the church. And Lord, we need to hear about these bad guys because of the one very great guy, our great Savior, Jesus Christ, and how, Lord, we must have the obedience of faith that comes from the proper understanding and declaration and hearing of your word, Lord, and how easily it is twisted and rejected. So, Lord, help me this morning to go through this overview of this book in a way that glorifies the Son. Amen. Amen. So, this book, Jude, speaks to just one primary concern, false teachers. And I noted that there was one commentator who had an extremely exhaustive 350-page book. And the first sentence in that book was, Jude is a book that has often been treated with benign neglect, rarely the text for a sermon. So this morning, we'll give it a go, all right? Jude is a book that both warns and motivates us. It speaks about those who pervert the gospel and the resulting wrath of God and judgment to the disobedient. It's his call to arms for his faithful servants to defend the gospel. So I guess we can say Jude is something like a motivational speaker. And if his language is taken seriously to heart, we should be motivated to know our Bible thoroughly, be aware of those who oppose us and it, and be actively loving and correcting others who wander. Jude is like a crescendo of stark warnings and a red alert to the church about false teachers. Many times Jesus, Paul, Peter, and others speak about false teachers in their midst, but Jude is a loud speaker to the church. He starts out saying briefly, he wanted to write about pleasant things, but then immediately launches into a gushing denunciation of and warning about false teachers, calling everyone to gather around and be warned. It's only a short letter, but it uses words like these. Pervert, sensuality, destroyed, chains, gloomy darkness, judgment, condemnation, 
immorality, unnatural desire, shame, eternal fire, defile, blaspheme, devil, air, perished, rebellion, fruitless, darkness, ungodly, ungodly, ungodly. Those are the words Jude applies to these false teachers. So now, this is how the letter begins in verses 1 and 2. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Jude begins by telling us he is a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. And we understand that James he is speaking of is James, the half-brother of Jesus, who was a well-known leader in the church in Jerusalem. So, of course, this makes Jude also the half-brother of Jesus, but Jude is not referring to himself that way. And he is speaking to Christians in general here, as he says, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. So this one sentence lays the foundation. He is speaking to those who are called to his son Jesus and believe in him for the forgiveness of their sins and all that true saving faith means. And he says they are kept for or by Jesus Christ. Now the word kept or keep is going to be used several times by Jude. And it speaks to God's divine sovereignty for example, God perfectly keeps his chosen ones in Christ, like Jesus prays to the Father for his people. Holy Father, keep them in your name. And to protect his people, Jesus prays, keep them from the evil one. But God also keeps the false teachers for a rather horrible end. And he will later say he wants us believers to do some keeping when he says we must keep ourselves in what he calls the love of God, meaning we've got things to do too. The next verse starts with Jude saying what he hoped to write about, but then turns immediately to what the letter is actually about. Beloved, Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Jude, he's got something he feels is much more urgent and pressing, and this is to contend for the faith, to contend for the true gospel. Like they said about Paul, he's now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, preaching the gospel, a message of true facts, demanding true saving faith, a faith which brings about repentance and what Paul calls the obedience of faith 
a faith which comes by believing things which are objectively true about God and his son, Jesus Christ, which no false teacher can change, no matter how hard he may try, clever and subtle he may be, books he may write, or well-crafted sermons he may give. So as we look at Jude's book, we must always stress faith is about a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, not just an understanding of facts about him. We must have a living trust in him as Savior and Lord, but if our facts about Jesus are incorrect or distorted, then our trust, our faith, can be erroneous or misplaced and of no real value. And for Jude here, these objectively true facts, which cannot be altered, have, as Jude says, been once for all delivered to the saints. And if you'll notice false teachers, there is not a once for all, but an addition, a new revelation. Sex and cults are ripe with this. For example, the obvious, Mormons have the Book of Mormon. So Jude is going to guide us from understanding there is this faith once for all delivered to us saints, and it is clearly of great value to contend for, but it is threatened by the heresy from within the church. And if you are a genuine believer, you must be part of this contending. And what is this contending like? Is it just about correcting false teachings and denouncing those who propagate it? Well, there is definitely a place for that. When Paul details and refutes the problems in Galatians, he ends his opposition by saying, I wish they, those false teachers, would just emasculate themselves. But Jude, although he vividly tells of their terrible destiny, he is not correcting the false doctrine brought in by false teachers. Over here in Jude's letter, his focus is on what false teachers look like in their lifestyle, not the specific theology of their erroneous teaching. Like Jesus warned, inwardly, they are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Jude tells us to expect them in the church, to recognize them, to be wary of them, and how the most severe judgment awaits them. And ultimately, Jude is redemptive, not just how to resist them, but to hold out hope to correct them and those who have been led astray. Now, after he tells us he is going to appeal to us to contend for the faith, for the truth of the gospel, he begins his uninterrupted description of the false teachers, and this really is the body of the letter in most of the book of Jude. And he has that one-sentence summary of them in verse 4, again. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. 
So there you have it. The primary characteristic of these false teachers. The main evidence and his focus on these ungodly people is in regards to their sensuality and ultimately their denying Christ. Jude will continue to point to the fruit bearing of these false teachers without details regarding their bad theology. They abuse God's grace and live in sensuality. Yes, their involvement in the church clearly leads to teaching error, but Jude says look mainly at the fruit of their lives to get good evidence. And not only do they pervert God's grace, but they deny Christ. But note, really it is their conduct, he says, mainly reveals their denial. Like Paul says to Titus about deceivers. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him. Now, if they came into the church and their overt teaching were to deny Christ entirely, then they would not be people who have crept in unnoticed. And this is a key point. These false teachers have crept in unnoticed. They are described nicely by Peter. There will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. These are apparently nice church-going people who don't come in with a trumpet teaching their ungodly behavior and easy grace. They are attractive. They draw people to themselves. They do teach. And Jude says they creep in unnoticed. And then Jude is going to remind us of what can happen to people in general who reject God, even though they may have been given and understand correct facts about him. He gives three examples in verses 5 to 7. The Jews coming out of Egypt, their rebellion and the resulting judgments, and also rebellious angels and their condemnation. And then he uses Sodom and Gomorrah, what Jude calls an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. And then he goes right on saying, in like manner, these people, meaning these false teachers, are also rejecting God in their own way and will also suffer the same fate. So who are these people, really? Well, this is what Jude calls them, these. After calling them certain people, he refers to them over and over again. These people, these people, these. So he's not being specific. Judaizers, Gnostics, but certainly they include antinomians. My sins are forgiven by Christ, so I can proceed with my error-filled living. Obviously, this is as prevalent in Christianity today as it was then. These people Jude is referring to, these false teachers, were characterized by their licentiousness, pride, and greed. And this is what he keeps harping on, their fruit, their behavior, their lifestyle. Look there. He's not detailing their corrupt theology. So what are these false teachers like? One thing for sure is they hate the law. They hate self-control. 
So Jude begins to describe them thoroughly in verse 8. They are dreamers, sensual, blasphemers. They reject authority. Now, calling them dreamers, Jude must be saying these false teachers have some type of visions they heard from God. One can't help but think of the Mormons and Joseph Smith, him and his visions of a speaking angel. Now, really, talk of visions was more common in Jude's day in a culture unlike our culture today that accepts only the materialistic. False teachers today do not need to appeal to a third party to give new revelation. Their relativism allows them to have their own truth. Maybe it's not true for you. What is objectively true? One could take what's clearly said, change it to new meanings, which are then easily accepted by minds trained in relativism. True for you, not for me. And so it's an easy leap to, did God really say? And then Jude says something which really describes the way these false teachers are guided and really how sinful humans operate much of the time. In verse 10, they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. These false teachers do understand one thing perfectly, their instinct, and that guides them. Animals don't reason like humans do. They are unreasoning. Now, it seems like we humans who know or claim to know God would do like Paul says. We should offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, which is the acceptable or reasonable response in worship. But as James says, our instinct to evil temptations causes us to be lured away and enticed and proceed down the road of fleshly instincts. So these false teachers who claim such wisdom, who have twisted the scriptures, are okay with being driven by their natural instincts to their indulgences, what their body likes. And if any problem with it, it's okay. They must think Christ will forgive. Then Jude refers to three specific persons who walked in wickedness and were judged for it. Previously, he referred to those three rebellious groups we mentioned, but here it's three people, Cain, Balaam, and Korah. And he says, woe to them. Cain, we know about him. Balaam was first greedy for money to curse Israel, and then when that didn't work, he succeeded to have the multitude of them tempted to sexual immorality with the Moabites. In this, Jude is pointing to what characterizes these false teachers, largely immoral and greedy, greedy for profit and followers, and Korah, well, he basically had a large cult of his own in the desert, challenging Moses and the law. It's the same thing Paul said would happen. From among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And that's what Jude is saying about these false teachers.
Then Jude says something very interesting. In verse 12, he says, they feast with you without fear. And this one shows the intimacy, Jude says, they can have in the church. The feast he is talking about is what Jude calls the love feast. And these are basically the common early Christian potluck, which also apparently included a celebration of the Lord's Supper. In Corinth, Paul tells us it involved some types of prophetic teaching. Now, why do these people stay in the church? Why not just go into the world and live without the restraints of some religion? Well, not every false teacher exhibits all the traits Jude refers to, but he points to their having an opportunity for leadership, money, pride and fame, controlling people. Recall Paul, he had a rather shocking list of how severe the interaction with these false teachers in the church could be. He told the Corinthians, for you bear it if someone makes slaves of you or devours you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or strikes you in the face. We should say, however, there are many rather ordinary churchgoers whose lifestyles have the effect of a false teacher as well. And being in the church can justify their behavior and falsehoods to them and others. People can keep thinking they are under God's grace. He's forgiven them. Or just change or ignore the clear teachings themselves. And doesn't that work pretty well? If you tone down the scriptures and just talk about God's love, his desire for you to have a better life, and say all is forgiven. Now, when we get to verse 17, we turn the corner. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's going to make some summary statements. And then he is going to give us some direction about what to do. Jude has been saying these, these, referring to the false teachers. And now he is saying you, meaning you, as in us. He starts by saying the apostles predicted this very thing. Verse 18, they said to you in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. Many warnings about false teachers everywhere. Jesus, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. Paul, after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, men speaking twisted things. And if we read, Peter says, there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. And what is the result of this false teaching? Is there a drumbeat of its impact throughout the New Testament? Many warnings about specific impacts of false teachers within the church. First Corinthians, arrogant teachers and celebrating sexual sin. Philippians, watch out for those dogs who teach circumcision and also those for whom their God is their stomach, glorying in their shame. Colossians, teachers of hollow philosophies and angel worship. First Thessalonians, 
Christ is coming soon, so maybe just sit and wait. Second Thessalonians, even more confusion by false teachers about Christ's return. First Timothy, false teachers promoting arrogance and greed. Second Timothy, after I die, Paul says those who abuse grace will come in. Titus, you must silence the false teachers of the circumcision party. First John, even now many antichrists have come and then gone out from us. Second John, many deceivers have gone out. Such is an antichrist. And how about those specific churches in Revelation John was writing to at the end of the first century? Many examples of false teachers' destructive works. So then, in verse 19, Jude gives us the summary. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. They create a deceived group within the church, drawing people away to their thinking, that's divisions, and they live in their worldliness, and they are devoid of the Spirit. And the ease with which divisions arise is well known to Paul. In Corinth, he battles even believers who divide by saying they follow various teachers rather than saying, I follow Christ. And of course, John says, they were here with us, but they went out from us because they were never really of us. Then, when Jude ends his description of these false teachers, just as he turns to us believers telling us how to respond, he ends with the final words, devoid of the spirit. These false teachers in Jude's case appear to be rather charismatic or attractive, persuasive and impressive. And so Jude uses intense language about those false teachers. Waterless clouds, fruitless trees, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves, foaming up shame, wandering stars destined for the gloom of utter darkness forever. But ultimately, they are devoid of the Spirit. They do not have the Holy Spirit in them. They have not really believed the gospel in a saving way. They have their minds set on the flesh and are hostile to God. They simply cannot submit to God's law. So they follow merely natural instincts. What they don't like about God's law, they reject, they adjust. And just to top it off, they stay in the church, surely partly because they imagine of that forgiveness of sins, whatever they think are real. That forgiveness they desire, which they believe is offered in Christ. So they are deceived into thinking they are covered either way reject or just adjust parts of the moral laws of God as one pleases, and also appeal to assumptions about his forgiveness. Are all who are influenced by false teachers devoid of the Spirit? No. And to make sure that doesn't happen, Jude will instruct us as we continue. So, as to the who, what, when, where, why, and how of these false teachers, who scoffers at God's law, 
What? Ungodly, ungodly, ungodly. When? The last times, meaning right now. Where? In the church. Why? It's the instinctive, sinful human nature rising up in certain teachers. How it continues? Because people either have itching ears, which want to hear some new, adjusted moral teaching, or they just simply don't know their Bible. And this turns us to Jude's instructions to us believers what to do about all this. I guess we might call it his application. And his instructions aren't focused on purging the church of these false teachers. He doesn't say to carefully counter their heresy. There is certainly the need for those things. But Jude directs us towards other critical works which are part of dealing with false teachers. He starts out in verse 20. But you, beloved, that's how he started out the letter speaking to us. Beloved, Jude says, do this. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So Jude says you must build yourself up in your most holy faith. And it starts, of course, in knowing and properly interpreting and understanding the scriptures. Because as with the beginning of Jude, where he says we must contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints, meaning the gospel itself, here it is the same thing. It's properly knowing biblical doctrine. If we don't know our doctrine, then we can't be Bereans and do like they did to Paul. Examine the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. To see if what I am saying is true. But building up on our most holy faith is much more than that in this short verse. Build yourself up. This points to a common metaphor throughout the New Testament, speaking of building up the body of Christ, the church, the community of believers, a group of people coming together who know, properly understand, and interpret the teachings of God, walk in obedience to those teachings, and desire to build the church for the glory of Christ. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, says Peter. Paul says you are citizens of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. This is how Jude is saying we deal with false teachers. We are certain of the true gospel and live by it, speak it, model it, not waver from it. And when people like that come together and work together, we are, like Jude says, building ourselves up in our most holy faith. So our individual knowledge of and obedience to the gospel is not the final end, but also a means to the end of coming into community to love each other and love the world for Christ. The false teachers are leading individuals one by one into error 
and thus poisoning the whole body of Christ. So we too must individually be of sound doctrine to build this body, sustain this body, protect this body, which Christ is building, glorifying him. That's how we poke those false teachers in the eye, and importantly more, Jude says, praying in the Holy Spirit. Appeal to God to move in all these things. So Jude says we must build ourselves up in our most holy faith, pray in the Spirit, keep ourselves in the love of God, referring to the basic means of grace God has given us. Read and know our Bible, pray and draw near to God by the Holy Spirit, and be in community, be dedicated to a church. Jude has gone on in vivid detail about false teachers, but finally tells us what to do. The Word of God, praying in the Spirit, and the church body. But, of course, first we've got Jesus Christ as our sure foundation. Got to have that. No one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. With that foundation, there are then two ways to build. If we don't build always relying on those means of grace, the word and prayer and intimacy with the Holy Spirit and being committed to the community of believers, then we can build a house on the sand. If we build incorrectly, then false teaching can take root. So it is critical to us to have this well-built building and to stand firmly against false teachings and is why Jude makes these commands very clear. And this leads to a second and very important part of what Jude is commanding us to do in response to the false teachers. It is reaching out to those who have been led astray by false teaching. Verse 22, and have mercy on those who doubt save others by snatching them out of the fire to others show mercy with fear hating even the garment stained by the flesh building up in the most holy faith praying in the spirit and keeping yourself in the love of god is preparing us for this our foundation to help in this case the victims of false teachers and we can even say possibly a correctable false teacher himself. And there is a progression here from doubters to those at the edge of fire, and then finally to those who are fully engulfed in false teaching and whom your mercy must be mixed with some fear. Jude's saying, go out and save the sheep. Don't just attack the wolves. Paul says, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds, destroying arguments and things raised against the proper knowledge of God. Then what Jesus said can apply to us. The student is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. We will fully recognize the counterfeit, the false teachings. 
then we can do what Paul said to do. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. Now, when we read through the Bible and the thought of false teachers on our mind, we see it everywhere, all over the New Testament, as we have seen this morning. That's why Jude was going to write about our common salvation, but instead sounded the alarm about the false teachers. The flesh of men and the devil are working constantly to twist and water down and adjust and change the scriptures. And successfully doing so in the modern American church. And it should be apparent to us what the result is. There is nothing new under the sun. The American church has in many ways been unable to withstand the massive onslaught of false teaching and has succumbed, is weakened. And the further obvious result our culture is, can we say, a lot like Jude's garment stained by the flesh? Actually, much worse than that. But I took heart in what I read the other day from a pastor's recent sermon. A man who saw even though there is severe moral decay evermore surrounding us, we can take heart by praying and trusting in the Lord. This is what he wrote. I love to see in God's people a serious concern for the moral decay all around us. Many of our prayers we say with tears and grieve because of the moral decline of our culture. The increase in sexual sin, increase in drug and alcohol use, Sometimes it seems like our once great nation is on the same path as Sodom and Gomorrah. Let's pray God will have mercy. That's a realistic outlook he has for us praying and hoping in God about our corrupt culture. But you see, that was not a modern sermon at all. To make the point, I simply took what Charles Spurgeon said about the culture of London, England in 1887, Victorian England, where a woman stepping on the curb with her frilly dress would use only one hand to lift it, because in lifting two, it would expose too much of her ankles. I took what Charles wrote and modernize it, but here is what he actually said. I love to see in God's people a holy horror of the sin which surrounds them. In several of the prayers in which we joined before we came upstairs to this service, there were many tears and cries over the wickedness of our streets, the impurity and the drunkenness which defile so many all around us. Alas, alas! Men seem bent on horrible iniquity, and it looks as if London, this great modern Babylon, 
will repeat the story of the cities of the plain, Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, may we pray, O oh Lord, have mercy upon the people. So from this, we can be encouraged. Our battle today has been waged by all generations of believers who came before us. Can we say again, there is nothing new under the sun? Notice, I did not mention or need to mention modern things like LGBT or CRT. We must always contend against false teaching. We must fight constantly to know and deliver the truths of God's word to all the world around us. But today, it's in the midst of a culture which mostly rejects Christ and fully reflects the results of that rejection. Even as in the first century church, a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. We are in a battle for the souls of men and women everywhere, and by extension, the very soul of our church, our culture. So let's contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Let's do like Paul said. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. So, Father, we thank you for your servant Jude, the half-brother of your son Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for giving him the wisdom to so carefully and boldly speak about false teachers, how to recognize them, how to fight them, and how for us to do our part by knowing thoroughly the scriptures and sharpening iron one to the other and continuing to learn and understand them. And Lord, thank you for helping us to have right understanding, to have good teachers. You have blessed us, Lord. And so we also know, Lord, that we must be contending for the faith by going out to the world and sharing this true gospel with others. It is the only hope for mankind, the only hope for the culture. It was the only hope for the Babylon that Spurgeon spoke of 150 years ago, and it's the only hope for the culture of today where it's basically the same prayers, God, have mercy through your gospel, saving people, showing them the, the truths of sin and redemption and the cross of Christ and how, Jesus, you paid it all for those who would come to faith, believe and have a repentance and have the obedience that comes from that faith. Thank you, Lord. And we are going to...